Confession time. How many of you were the, the bad kids? <laughs> How many of you were the good kids? How many of you good kids are lying right now? <laughs> Do we need to ask your parents? Come on. No, so this morning we are going to look at a very uh, popular parable. We're in our series uh, called The Storyteller. It's Lessons at the Feet of Jesus. And we're looking through the parables that Jesus told. And the one we're looking at today is, is probably, it's one of the two most popular parables uh, probably that you would at least be familiar with. And people even who have no really knowledge of scripture would even be familiar with this one. The two most popular ones are the parable of the Good Samaritan, I, I believe. And the other one is the prodigal son is the way you kind of think of it. And, and because they show up in art, they show up in uh, contemporary culture and even actually ancient culture throughout time. So these are imageries, stories that Jesus told that were so vivid and made such a point that they have kind of gone outside of the family of faith and become something that is very common, in, or, or at least a common phrase that we understand. Now this morning we're going to look at this story, and we've talked about it um, in different times throughout the last couple of years, uh, never totally in-depth, but because of that we're not going to go all the way deep to every single little word, but we want to understand why did Jesus tell this story and what does it tell us for today about the nature of who God is and then our response to him. So that's what we're going to look at, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 15. So Luke chapter 15, we're here, we're still going through our parables, and Luke chapter 15, we're actually going to start in verse 11, but before we do that, the beginning of 15, we have to know the context, so hopefully throughout the summer, it's it's helped you understand that whenever we're we're looking at these stories, and hear Jesus tell a story, we want to hear, okay, who is he telling it to, and what's the context, what does it feel like when he says this, so in the beginning of 15, it says, all the text collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him and both the Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees were were kind of the religious leaders they were very committed to keeping the law and following the law perfectly so the Pharisees and the scribes were also uh, uh, both you think of them as the religious ones they began to grumble saying this man receives sinners and eats with them and another thing that we saw that came up this summer is that eating together was a symbol of hospitality or acceptance. Maybe not acceptance of the behavior, but acceptance of the person and saying, you are welcome with me. We can have peace with one another. So here there we have the sinners who are drawn to Jesus and the religious people who also are drawn to Jesus, but they're grumbling because they're frustrated because they say, why is it that he keeps welcoming and eating with these sinners? So that's a context. Then Jesus jumps into three stories. Uh, he tells a story about a lost sheep and a lost coin. You're welcome to read those on your own. In fact, I encourage you to read those on your own this week. But now in verse 11 is his third story in a row that he tells. And I'm gonna, going to explain it to you and tell it to you in the two parts, because there's really two parts here. So it starts off, and he says, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the man divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with reckless living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating because no one was giving him 
anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here in hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And a son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring out the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now this is, as I said, perhaps a familiar story for you. Perhaps something that you've heard before, and I hope that you have picked up on the fact that this is a a picture of God's love for us and of forgiveness. And if that's new to you, I'll tell you this is a picture of God's love for us and His forgiveness. And the story here is one that maybe perhaps is easy to kind of relate to or at least understand the character. It's easy to relate to who we'll call him the bad son. And you'll see in a moment that maybe that's not the case, but for the sake of understanding, here's someone who leaves, squanders it all, and comes back, and his father completely forgives him and reinstates his sonship and all this stuff. Now, what are a few things that we need to understand for this first part? So first of all, what we have here is how it began. He goes to his father and says, Hey, father, I want my inheritance now. Now, if my kids said that to me, that would be great because I could give them 25 bucks, but be no problem. But culturally for them, at the time, to say, I want my inheritance now, this would be a, a, a very offensive thing to say. Now, it, it maybe wouldn't be completely unheard of for the father to say, well, here's, I'll divide it now so you all understand, and, and even say, hey, I can even transfer the rights to this to you now. That would be unusual, but maybe not the craziest thing. But what gets crazy is, it's, but if a father did that before his death, it would, the understanding would be that the sons become stewards of that stuff, even though they own it, but they would still, the father could still live off of the proceeds of all of his, uh, his land and his business or whatever, so that the father would have something to live on the rest of his life. So even if he divided the estate, he still would get the income from the estate while the kids are still alive. And, and it was understood that even though I gave this to my son, I still can live off of it. Okay, tracking there? Now, what becomes unusual and very offensive is when the son, now when he says he gathers all of his stuff together, and in other words, what happens is he sells what was given to him, he cashes it in. He says, not only do I want to know what's mine, now I'm going to cash it in. I'm going to take it. And when, the only time when that was supposed to happen is when the father died. So for us reading the story, we might read it and think like, okay, that's kind of not cool. But culturally, first century, what he's saying is, dad, between you and me, essentially our relationship is over and we're dead to one another. It, culturally, that, that's the only way you could read it. So when Jesus is telling the story in first century, and the tax collectors and the sinners are hearing this, immediately nobody is drawn to, the, to this bad son. 
No one is saying like, oh, here's a likable character. Let's see what goes for him. Th- their hearts are like, wait a minute, what did he just do? He just said, his re- he just broke his relationship with his father and essentially said, dad, you are dead to me. And you no longer even have your possessions to live off of. I'm taking what's mine. I'm taking what's mine. And I'm going to go live my own life. So he goes off and he squanders his wealth. And they say he, he goes to a distant country and ends up feeding the swine. So this is probably an uh, indication, too, of Jesus is saying he went. If you remember earlier, if you've been a part of this series, we talked about the other side of the lake where the non-Jews lived. And that's where all the swine were raised. Jesus is probably using that as the distant country to say not only has he turned his back on his family, he's turned his back on his faith. He's giving up all of what makes him who he is. And now he's living over there and he's given it all up and he finds himself it says that he squanders all of his wealth on some translations say loose living some say reckless living but what we know is he went and he spent it all isn't it interesting how sometimes when we get to that place in our lives where you're kind of at the end of your rope you can look back and there's times when you say I made the decisions to get myself here. Some of you are here today. Some of you, I know your stories of faith. When you got to the end of the road or the end of your rope, and you could look back and say, I know how I got here. It was decisions that I made along the way that kept sending me deeper and deeper down or sliding down this rope till I got to the end. But notice in this story, he, made, he squanders all of his wealth and he's kind of scraping to get by. But now what happens? A severe famine hits the land. Now again, so to this point, we see the younger, or the younger son has made some poor decisions. He's been really rude to his family. He said, Dad, you're dead to me. And now he's spent everything. And, and so to this point, it's all on him. Now a famine hits the land. Now first century, when a famine hits the land, who do they blame on that? Anyone have an idea? God, yeah. The weather is controlled by God. So Jesus throws in, and he doesn't make this the emphasis of the story, but it's almost like he got to the end of his rope, and God said, we're going to just push you a little bit farther. (laughs) So sometimes for whatever reason, and and maybe it wasn't just for him, but the circumstances of, of nature got him to the very end, where now he couldn't even scrape to get by. Uh, Matt has a a saying that he said a while ago, I'm sure it's original with him, but um, at the end of your rope is where we often find God's office. And and, and so what we find here is at the end of the rope, this son said, I have nowhere, I don't know where else to go. And in verse 17, I want you to look at that and circle it in your parable if you'd like to write in your Bibles, because this is the turning point. And spiritually speaking, many of us have the story where maybe this verse explains your life. When he came to his senses, there's there's a point when a lot of us get to that point with our relationship with God and spiritually speaking, where we kind of get to the end of it all. We've tried a little bit of everything, and when he comes to his senses, he realizes this is not working. Tim Keller describes this son as the one who is living a life of self-discovery of self-discovery, where he's saying, I'm going to take, even though I already have everything I need from my father, even though in my father's house I have land, I have food, I have importance, I have significance, I want to find my own way. So he takes it all to go on a life of self-discovery. I love the way Keller describes that. Many of us, this is one of the postures that a lot of us live our lives. 
Let me, okay, God, that's great, but I'm going to find my own path. Do my own thing. And I'm not just saying, apart from your parents, that you want to kind of be your own person. But this is saying, I, everything that God the Father has given you, that you say, okay, that's great, but let me create my own significance in life. That's what's happening here. And this son is realizing, this is leading to nowhere. So he comes to his senses. And this is a turning point in the parable. And, and though this parable doesn't have perfect uh, stru- uh, parallel structure, you'll notice that basically everything that the son does as a choice, the father reverses. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. So he says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father. So, verse 20, he got up, he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Again, culturally speaking, at this point in the story, people in the crowd were probably thinking like, well, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. There's no way I would go back and, and run to the son. I would at least let him grovel a little bit. But this father sees him and runs down the road. Now again, by Jesus even saying he ran, this is a quick little cultural note. Um, in the ancient world, fathers would not run. Running in their culture was seen as childish. And because to run, they had to have these robes on, they'd have to pull them up a little bit so that they could run. Otherwise, it'd be like, anyone ever used to watch cops and people who were sagging and like running from the cops and they would fall over? I used to love that. That was funny. But, um, <laughs> so he had to pull up his robe to be able to run fast. But that's, and, and that was, the, the actual belief was only kids run. That's a childish thing to do. It's playful. It's lighthearted. So the, when Jesus says he ran to him, he's actually saying he's so overwhelmed that there was this playful, lighthearted moment where the father was not being dignified like, I will walk to my son. No, my son is coming back. And he runs to him. He runs to him. And he embraces him. And his son had this speech rehearsed pretty well. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I, I don't even deserve to be your son, so make me one of your higher. He had it, and he, and he even says his whole speech. And I don't know if the father just said, yeah, 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 whatever. But the father's response is incredible when he says, come and bring out the best robe. See, the father was so overwhelmed when his son returned. Now, you might think, like, What's going on with this father? I had a friend who, she told me when she was about seven years old, she decided to run away from home, and her parents let her. <laughs> she said to her parents, hey, I'm, I'm not living here anymore. I'm running away. And her parents said, okay, well, we'll help you pack. <laughs> and she got out her little red wagon, and she, they said, you better pack things that you need. So she got her stuffed animals and her blanket. And they said, well, do you have any food? So she got some cookies and she said, okay, I'm running away. And, and she tells me the story of she actually kind of was calling the parent, like, I'm, I'm leaving. And her parents say, go ahead. Go ahead. Have a good life. We'll miss you. So she ran away. She took her wagon and she walked down the street. And she ran away for like two hours. <laughs> she got to the end of the street and sat there, knowing that she had run away. <laughs> After a couple hours... At least for her, she said it felt like forever. Who knows, it might have been 20 minutes. (laughs) But she went back. When she got back, her parents saw her, and they didn't change the locks on the door. (laughs) They asked her what she was doing there, and she said, well, I decided I'm going to come home. I guess it's okay. And they welcomed her back in. 
You see, but when she ran away, the parents didn't actually close the door and say, like, well, I guess that's one less kid. That's kind of awesome. Let's go remodel the room. When she ran away, they actually knew where she was the whole time. So they didn't actually let her go into danger. They, they watched her. They knew where she was. And imagine what kind of patience it would take as a parent to actually sit there and wait for those hours, not letting her know you know she's there, but also knowing that, okay, I still have my eye on her. What kind of patience would it take to not go over there and say, come, would you just please come home, but to let her go through this process? I kind of think of that as this picture here of the son saying, I am leaving, and the father's heartbroken. See, spiritually speaking, when we run away from our God, we're like that little kid who runs away. He might let you go. You want to go on a life of self-discovery, he's going to let you. But he has his eye on you the whole time. And as soon as the son turns around and starts coming back, he doesn't say, you better make your way all the way back to me. He runs out. This is a wonderful picture of what repentance looks like. In fact, the word repentance means to turn from or turn around from sin. And so here the younger son turns around from the life he was living, a life of self-discovery, and the father runs to him. You see, you can run a thousand miles from God, and when you turn around to come back, you're going to meet him right there. You don't have to run a thousand miles back. You don't have to earn your way back to him. He'll pursue you. That's what we see in this story. So he runs to him. He puts his arms around him. He says, put the best robe on him. Can you imagine this guy has been working in the fields, feeding the swine, and wants to eat their food? He probably is not the cleanest, best smelling person around. And the father says, put the best robe on him. You know who had the best robe in the house? The father. He's saying, go grab my robe and put it on him. He didn't say, but clean him up first. Bring him down to the river and make him smell better. Then put, he said, put my robe on him. He's a mess. Put my robe on him. Put a ring on his finger, which is sim- symbolic of his authority being reestablished. And put sandals on his feet, which meant you're not a slave. You are, you are a free person. So in this moment where the son says, hey, take me back, I will be a slave. He says, no, 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 you are my son. You are my son. How many of us, when we run from God, when we come back, we think, I'll do anything. I'll mop the floors in heaven. God, I will be on the lowest rung, whatever it takes. We're misunderstanding the good news. See, the good news is God saying, no, 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 you are my son or my daughter. I'm reestablished. I welcome you back in. You don't have to earn this. We have this kind of transaction mentality that I slip into all the time to think, God, I'm not worthy of a nice big house. Give me just something, you know, I'll work the stables in heaven if that's a job. No problem. I'll be the janitor if that's the job. Whatever, Whatever you need. God says, are you kidding me? You're my son thinking you have to earn your way back so in this the son says i'll be your slave and he says no you are my son by putting the robe on him and then he kills a fattened calf notice again what did he just reverse a minute ago he was starving he wanted to eat the food from the pigs and the father says no kill the fattened calf this was very unusual to have a fattened calf was was something that was uh, reserved for 
weddings and occasions when you would generally feed the entire village. So what's happening here is he's saying, we are going to have a feast, and this is very special food we're making for my son now. So they kill the fattened calf, they celebrate, and what does he say? For my son, who was dead, is now alive. You see, at the beginning, the son says, Dad, I want my inheritance. You are dead to me. What would it take for a father to look at at your kid in the eyes who said, you are dead to me, to say, you know what? We're going to celebrate because now you're alive. What incredible love and mercy and grace we have from this father. So the picture of this first story, what we have is someone who goes on a life of self-discovery and who is encountering the good news, being made whole by Christ. And Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me in the robe of his righteousness. In that right relationship. The relationship was broken, but now God is wrapping you in the robe of righteousness. That's what's happening here. Now, the rest of the story. To those of you in the room who call yourselves the good kids in your family, (laughs) I know you weren't talking spiritually. You were just saying in the family. Now the older son was in the field, and when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring of what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said, Father, look. For so many years I've been serving you, I've never neglected a command, and yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth on prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And his father said, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see the response of the older brother, I kind of understand. I'm not, I'm not mad at him for his response, for being like, you know what, are you serious? I've been here all, he gets the fattened calf because he went and s- spent it all, really? And don't, don't you kind of have that little feeling of a little bit of justice, at least, to think like, well, he doesn't deserve that. I mean, if you're going to welcome him back, at least just give him, I don't know, like vegan food or something, but... <laughs> Sorry, no apologies to those of you. I'm in Encinitas, can't say that joke anymore. All right, so. <laughs> but he comes back and, he, and you celebrate and he's mad and I kind of get it. I kind of get it. And the Pharisees probably heard this and they got it. They're like, yeah, seriously? But there's a few cultural things that Jesus threw in that actually make it, make us understand more. And the one was this, is, what was he really mad at? Because the father responds and says, wait, 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 all that I have is yours. I already divided the estate. You know this all belongs to you. So what is one of the things he's mad at? That fattened calf is his. He's not mad. It's, it's not just that his, son's, his brother's back, but it's, hey, that's my fattened calf. What are you doing? I never said he could have that. Are you kidding me? See, he, he was thinking, this is my stuff. The father even said, all of this is yours. If you wanted a young goat, you could have had it. It's yours. All that I have is yours. 
So he's mad because that's his stuff. The other thing that we see here is he says this, and this is speaking to the nature. Of, this is the comment that we have to understand. He says, look, I have slaved for you and served you for many years, never neglecting a command, and yet you never gave me a young goat. In other words, I have been slaving to get from you, and you've never given it to me. See, he was misunderstanding that he already had it. But the other thing was, his relationship with his father was based on his actions. In fact, right before that, when he said he refused to go into the party, that was perhaps as culturally as offensive as this other son cashing in his inheritance. It would be entirely offensive to say to someone, I know I'm invited to this party, but I am not coming. In fact, Jesus uses another parable about a wedding feast where someone invited all of his friends and they all gave excuses to not to come. It was very offensive to turn down an invitation to come inside. He refused to go in the party. His relationship with his father was already broken. See, in both cases, the good son and the bad son, the issue for them is they had a broken relationship with their father. One of them was a very obvious broken relationship, and the other one was very subtle. One was based on, I want, I'm going to take, and I'm going to run away from you, and the other one was based on, for me, all you are is someone, it, it, it's a transaction. There's no love there. He misunderstood, both of them misunderstood the Father. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul's writing, he says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness that comes from the law. And righteousness, when we say that, is your right relationship with God. He said, I don't want to have a right relationship that's based on law, based on the things that I do, based on serving you perfectly for years after year, but I want one that's through faith in Christ. The right relationship that from God that is a basis of our faith. I want it based on who the Father is, not based on who I am. So in this one brief parable is given us the whole story of the good news of Jesus. And the question for us this morning is, where do you fall in this? Now, some of us can definitely relate to the bad son, right? Some of us, maybe not squandering everything, but in subtle ways, self-discovery. And some of us can really actually relate to the older son, which I would say is self-sufficiency. He's finding his relationship with God is based on what he does, not on who the Father is. So the question for us is how can we respond? And to respond in this last couple minutes, I just want to show you one brief little parable. Because in the book of Luke, Luke uses Jesus to address the Pharisees and sinners time and time again. And it's a theme that pops up. And I think the reason it pops up is because we tend to lean either way. And maybe throughout the course of your week, you feel like you're a sinner half the week and a Pharisee the other half. And so it's interesting that Jesus keeps pounding on this theme throughout the whole book of Luke. But he finds it here in Luke 18, I I believe, is how we can find our response. That will help us in both sides. Verse 9, Jesus tells this parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector or a sinner. A good son and the bad son. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this by himself. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. It's a great prayer, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine? I don't know if any of you pray like that when you come here on Sunday mornings, but um, obviously Jesus likes hyperbole, but could you imagine if you see someone over there like, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like the people of the seacoast. <laughs> I thank you that I am much more holy than all of them. (laughs) 
And he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. In other words, I obey every command. I have been slaving for you, God. I'm serving you perfectly. But the tax collector was standing some distance away. Again, probably because he was unclean and didn't want to affect others. And he's standing some distance away. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, to understand how this relates to our response, when they went up to the temple to pray, this was most likely the daily sacrifice that was an atonement sacrifice being made. And it was common to go and then to pray during that time while the priest went in to make the sacrifice. It was an atonement one. And the Pharisee's outside, and while the atonement is taking place, he's praying and saying, God, I'm so grateful that I don't even need what's going on in that temple right now. I don't even need the sacrifice because I already follow you perfectly. And the sinner is saying, God, I don't even deserve this, but would you be merciful? And this word merciful, actually, I don't think is the right translation. There's two words that we could use here, and this is the word that actually says, God, make atonement for my sin. And so what he's saying is, make the atonement that's happening right now be enough to cover me. Make the little sacrifice that's going on in the temple be enough, because I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this right now. And what we have here, and then Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and who will be exalted will be humbled, is showing the two responses. You can, be, you can dig in on your self-sufficiency. You can dig in and say, God, look at me. I, l- listen, I got up at five today and started reading the Bible, and I was praying the same time. It was pretty amazing. And, and, and you, can, you can get into all that. Now, some of you did get up at 5 and started praying and reading the Bible, and you were very amazing to me because I don't do that at 5 a.m. But if we're doing that because that is what builds your, what you think earns a relationship with God, we miss it. If you're saying, well, that's making me so much more prepared to worship than everyone else who just came in here. Do you know some people in here were probably in a bar last night? Can't believe it. At least I wasn't. I was watching a Saturday night sermon at some other church, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm, I'm prepared. Is it your works that are earning your forgiveness? Or the sinner who says, well, the sacrifice that you make, God, make that enough for me. Make that enough for me. Because I couldn't earn it on my own. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, I have it on the screen for you. God speaking to righteous and sinners, and he says this, but to the one, this is to the one whom I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. The one who has the right response to God is the one who sees God the Father for who he is and trembles. Trembles. Now, you might say, Ryan, so is there any, do we have to do anything? Is it just, okay, God, you're good, thank you. No, notice in both these stories, there's a repentance. There's a turning from sin. But there's a reliance on what makes you good is what God has done. And we tremble now at his word because he is so good. The father runs out to us. Do you think the younger son was changed when the father ran to him? 
We don't know, but I think his life was radically different from that point on because he understood the amazing love of God. And you might be thinking, Ryan, this sounds familiar. Don't you, hasn't the book of Luke reminded this, us of this week after week? And the answer is yes. And isn't it interesting that almost every story in the book of Luke is reminding us that it is God and his love and mercy and goodness that provides us what we need. That is who he is that causes us to respond. It's not to get to him, but it's because he came to us. Jesus wants us to get this point. So as we end here, we're going to sing one final song. I want to invite the worship team to make their way back up. And this morning in in here, uh, the truth is there's times when we are the self-discovery ones and there's times when we're the self-sufficient ones. And the life of faith isn't just one or the other and very linear. I get it. Like we have our ups and downs and, and kind of have our path go many ways. But for us here this morning, the, the question is really, how do we, do we really understand what God has done? Are we really willing to look him full in the face and, and respond to this great love? Can we really understand that he is the father who ran down the road for us? And if he does, is our response to tremble at his word, to have lives that are shaped and transformed because what God has done. That's really what is at play here. So as we end, we're going to end with one final song. And before we do, I just want to take a moment to pray. And for some of you, perhaps it's the need to confess sins. Maybe you feel like the younger son who's been running. For some of you, you need to confess the sin of self-righteousness. And you need to just fall on the mercy and grace of a loving Father. So let's end our time here and just take a moment to let God work in your heart. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. And I I thank you that in this story we can find ourselves here. And Lord, for some of us, we're like my friend who ran away. And we ran from you, trying to find a life on our own. But God, you always kept your eye on us. And Lord, for some in this place, this morning is the morning that they're coming back to you. Lord, would you run and meet them? Would you remind them that you're putting your robe on them and calling them your sons and your daughters? And God, for some of us, we have times when we slip into the trying to keep your love through our actions or trying to earn your love through our actions. And God, we know that our obedience is important, but Lord, let it be out of response to how good you are. Not to earn, not to pay back, not to create value, but Lord, because of who you are. So in this place, Lord, we want to tremble at your word. We want to tremble at your goodness. We want to be a church community who understands you and is being shaped because of who you are. So would you move in this place, Lord? as we respond to you. In your name, amen.